Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Rablick and thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. Over the past few months, have been a lot. there's been a lot of talk on uh, issues to do with estimates, statistics, uh, possible rates of infection, possible rates of death, possible uh, need to spend uh, amounts up to $130 billion on government schemes. And then we've had numbers not quite matching that coming out late on a Friday afternoon. How do these things happen? How do we look at forecasts from an economic standpoint as well as actual calculations? Some of you might be aware that I'm, I'm familiar with the accounting side of life. I'm not necessarily familiar with the economic side of life as I perhaps should be. So my guest today uh, from the Australia Institute is going to help us out here. It's Richard Dennis, who's the chief chief economist with uh, the Australia Institute, who will take us through a few issues to do with the pandemic and how we better understand what goes on. Richard, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Now, what are the? Let's go back about a week when the job keeper announcement was made by Treasury and the ATO related to. Uh, the calculation of 130 billion, which is no longer 130 billion, but 60 billion. There was some confusion in the media about that. How did you read that particular announcement? What are your What's your take on it? Uh, well, there's confusion all around because there's errors all around, and um, yeah, look, we're a long way from getting to the bottom of it. But uh, what we know for sure is that the uh, the government has made at least two errors that have nothing to do with each other. Um, the first error was Treasury's error about two months ago when it estimated, when it forecast, when it had its best guess, that around 6 million people would likely be eligible for the JobKeeper payment. Now, we should be gentle with Treasury here, Um Government's never proposed a policy like JobKeeper before. Uh, we've never got no historic data on how a policy like JobKeeper uh, might work. And we've never seen a recession the likes of the one that we're having. So, you know, let's let's be kind to Treasury and say it was always going to be hard to, to, to guess, forecast, project, whatever verb you want to use, how many people would be eligible for JobKeeper. But they, um, they came up with 6 million, and that's nearly half the entire workforce. And myself and a number of economists at the time thought that that, that looked pretty either large or generous. You know, large would mean that, boy, are we in for a recession if 6 million people need a wage subsidy, or generous uh, if we're going to give a wage subsidy to 6 million people when only one or two only one or two million people might become unemployed, that's uh, pretty generous to employers to pay a wage subsidy to people who weren't going to lose their job. So, so Treasury said about six million, and you know that's the number everyone relied on. But then, in an entirely unrelated error, the tax office told us that a bit over six million people were receiving JobKeeper. So Treasury said a bit over 6 million would be eligible. Tax office told us for about a month that 6 million people were getting it. 
And it turns out both of them were completely wrong. Uh, the, the forecast for how many people should get it, that's an economic error. Uh, you know, they were out by around 100%. And I think more concerningly, tr- uh, the, the tax office made an accounting error because the tax office told us that 6 million people were receiving it. And, and then we found out, no, no, actually only 3.5 million were. So those two errors have nothing to do with each other but two different arms of government kind of made this, the same size mistake, but they made that mistake in different ways. So um, be interesting to get to the bottom of how. I've sat back and, and looked at it with tax agents who were scratching their heads as well because some of them went through an interesting process with JobKeeper, one of which was the, the actual form-filling process where they had to estimate, where, where the employer had to estimate how many people would be eligible. And then subsequent to that, they also had to get employees to declare they were eligible or were eligible to get the benefit from employer A if they were also working for employer B or employer C, depending on how many jobs they had at the time. And there's a bit of confusion across the board as what I'm gathering. Are you sensing that as well? Oh, absolutely, which is why, you know, I'm quite sympathetic to Treasury, you know, when someone said, how many people do you think will be eligible for this? I mean, how on earth would anyone know how many people were going to be eligible? Uh, And, of course, the government's changed the eligibility rules uh, a number of times uh, since since, uh, Treasury first costed it and first made the forecast. And what's interesting is when when the government changed the rules, there was never any public statement that the number of people who were now eligible had changed. So, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not at all surprised that, that people tasked with filling out the forms and advising people on how to fill out the forms might be a bit confused. Uh, frankly, I, I, think, I think everyone that's looked at it's a bit confused. But, uh, again, they were 100% out, you know, 6 million instead of 3 million. Do you think that there's some sort of fog that descends in the bureaucracy when they start to look at something like the pandemic and perhaps overestimate in the early stages so they can't be accused of um, being too too conservative or too stingy in a in a fluid environment? Uh, I'm trying to work it out. Yeah, so maybe, but see again, uh, well, let's where to start it's it's as if the government is now assuming that there's a third error so treasury overestimated the number of people who would be eligible and the tax office uh miscounted the number of people who are actually claiming it but but let's be crystal clear about this uh treasury said we're in for a 10 percent recession and spending around $130 billion on this package is what the economy needs. So, in other words, Treasury said we think the recession's going to be 10% or so, and because it's going to be that deep, having such an expensive wage subsidy is proportionate to the size of the recession we're expecting. Well, the government's now saying, look, we're only spending half half of what we thought we were going to spend on JobKeeper, but that's good. That's okay. Well, 
that only makes sense if you think the recession's going to be about half as deep as Treasury was forecasting it to be. So if we still think that the recession we're heading for is going to be of the order of 10% of GDP, then we should be spending $130 billion or so on this kind of stimulus. Now, if the government wants to say, good news, we're only spending 70 or $60 billion, it's only good news if Treasury said, oh, actually, we, we got our, our GDP forecast entirely wrong. We think the economy is only going to shrink by 5%. So, uh, yeah, I think we have to be very careful here uh, in, in trying to figure out what's going on because if, if Treasury's forecast for GDP was anything like accurate, then the fact that it got the size of the eligibility for JobKeeper wrong doesn't mean we shouldn't be spending the money on stimulus. It just means we need to think up a new way to spend it on stimulus. Or if Treasury now think the economy's not going to be nearly that deep, I think they should come out and tell us that as quick as possible. But at the moment, we've got the government sort of celebrating that the stimulus just got a lot smaller without providing any reason to think that the, the recession's going to be any smaller. It's quite confusing. Now, one of the things that, that happened the other week uh, when the actual announcement was made by Treasury and the ATO, well, the, the journalists seemed to be a little more, uh, more confused about terminology and everything else. In terms of forecasts, forecasts and actuals and other other stuff, um, how do you unlock that as a person that communicates a lot about the about the economy for people for whom it's not you know the first discipline, if you like? Uh, how do you make them, How do you make them understand that? Well, I actually don't think it's our... The, the challenge isn't how do we make the public understand. The The challenge is how do we get our politicians, our business leaders, our journalists to talk in the language that the public already speaks. I mean, if I didn't speak Japanese and you didn't speak Japanese, it would be weird for you and I to explain something complicated to other people in Japanese. But... There's plenty of non-economist politicians out there getting interviewed by non-economist journalists, and they're both speaking what I call econobabble and confusing the bejesus out of their audience. So, I, I yeah, I, I think the challenge is not how do we make the public understand. I think the challenge is how do we have a public policy debate in Australia that's spoken in the language that the most that the majority of the population speak, which is plain English, not 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 economics. So, uh, so I think that one of the biggest sources of confusion in these sorts of debates is that uh, that politicians and business leaders and journalists uh, confuse precision with accuracy. They they love talking about you know three point five seven percent. Growth forecasts, rather than saying, "Oh, about three is likely," but no one really knows. Like I think a big part of it is we need to say to the public, "No one knows what the future looks like at the best of times, 
we can't predict interest rates or inflation rates or uh, economic growth rates six months out with any accuracy. But we've got into the habit in public policy debate of making bizarre predictions about what cutting the tax rate will do to GDP in 20 years' time or what introducing a carbon price will do to GDP in 20 years' time. If we just admitted that no one really knows these things and then had a, had a kind of a common sense public debate about orders of magnitude, about better and worse, then, then I think we could take a lot more people with us in the conversation. But I think it's in a lot of people's interests to, to use big words and use precise forecasts rather than make simple arguments for, for what they want to do to change the country. Well, one of the things that one of the things that I've done over a couple of decades is have to explain accounting terminology in plain English uh, to audiences I've written for. That can be a challenge, but there's no point telling people uh, you um, a new accounting rule requires amortisation, which can which is jargon. You might as well tell them something is going to be written off more yeah. over time. Uh, that's right. And look, I, I think that uh, I, I'm an economist. I like economics. My my discipline has its own jargon. It has its own scientific language. And, you know, my, my one liner on this is that jargon is great between consenting adults. If, if I'm an accountant and you're an accountant, we can have a much faster conversation about accounting when we when we use our scientific language that we both share. When I'm talking to other economists that I work with, I can have a much quicker conversation with them about some concepts because I know they share a language. But when I talk to my mum or my dad, both of whom are very smart, neither of whom have studied economics, um, I, I, I choose my words differently. I explain some key concepts at the beginning. I, I use analogies that I think are helpful uh, in order to step them through what I think is uh, something important and something worth talking about. So uh, I, I think we, you know, if you send someone to the doctor and the doctor said, you know, Latin word, Latin word, uh, long scientific word, dead in six months if you don't take a pill, we tell everyone, ask them to speak clearly, make sure you understand, get a second opinion. The same is true if a plumber comes to my house and says plumbing word, plumbing word, something about pipes I don't understand, $10,000. It's my job to say, well, look, mate, I, I didn't understand a word you said, but before I give you 10000 bucks, really like to understand what the problem is, what the options are, what the pros and cons of the options are, and what happens if I don't spend the 10000 bucks. Persuade me. So... All professions, all professions have jargon and complicated language, but I think economics is unique in that, you know, you can turn on breakfast radio and, again, hear non-economist journalists talking to non-economist politicians in a language that neither of them speak fluently and almost none of their audience speak at all. Is this, the, is this in part, Richard, the problem with... Um, all politicians have, you know, I, need, I need perhaps qualify it, some of the politicians walking into interviews with talking points. They might not know what the talking points mean, but there's a script. Um, 
I, I, I think that's part of it, but I think it's worse than that. Um, politicians, uh, well, let, let me go back a step. You can't have a democracy without politicians. Uh, I'm glad we have politicians. It's a tough job, and I'm glad people put their hand up to do it. So I don't mean to disparage the role of politicians, but it's if a politician can make two groups of hap- two groups of people happy that rather than one group happy and one group sad uh, a successful professional politician will, will tend to do that and what economic language does what economic language allows and facilitates is for politicians to speak to different people and say uh, and keep different groups of people happy at the same time by concealing what's really being said. So, uh, you know, my the most frustrating thing you can hear a politician say is we can't afford to do that, you know, or it's not even let's make it sound a little bit more, uh, a, a little bit more economic. Uh, because of the parameters in the forward budget estimates, it would be... Uh, fiscally irresponsible to pursue such a policy. Now, that was just all a fancy way of saying, I don't want to do that. So, you know, let's be clear, Australia is one of the richest countries in the world. We live at the richest point in world history. Uh, We're about to spend $200 billion to build 12 submarines to protect us in, in some future war that we may or may not have, we can afford $200 billion for one piece of military equipment, which we might use at some point in the future. And, and when you hear on the radio a minister say we, quote, can't afford to spend more on domestic violence shelters or we can't afford to spend more on aged care so that there's no malnutrition in our aged care homes when at the moment there's quite a lot of malnutrition in our aged care homes. When a politician says we can't afford to do that, they mean to say I'd rather spend the money on something else. But no politician wants to own the choices they make when those choices are as stark as that. So using a whole bunch of econobabble like parameters in the forward estimates and the need for fiscal responsibility, all of those words make politicians a lot more comfortable going on breakfast radio to explain why they're not going to spend any more money on domestic violence shelters, but why they are going to cut taxes on a partic- for a particular group in society. So whenever you hear someone say can't afford in a rich country, can't afford coming from a government minister translates as don't want to. But you can see why they go with can't afford. You can make a, a, a lot more groups of people uh, feel heard using economics as an excuse for what are really just value propositions. And one thing that we've, uh, one thing that we've looked at over the past few months is various sectors, whether it be the arts and other sectors, being innovative. And one of the things I just wanted to touch on with you this afternoon was uh, the fact that there are conversations that have been had between the union movement, business bodies and the government over the past couple of months 
it appears that we might be um, heading into a space where people might be willing to be more, uh, shall we say, creative policy-wise, uh, given the Prime Minister's recent speech. Do you agree with that? Do you agree with that perception? And whether and what what are the areas you think they ought to be more creative in? Uh, well, you know, we could all live in hope. Um, look, unfortunately, in Australia, industrial relations reform uh, or the debate about industrial relations reform has it's become totemic. It's a definitely definitional issue for. Uh, for a lot of people on on all sides of Australian politics, and if you look around the world, you just don't see that other countries obsess about it in in the same way that we do. So, uh, having a fight about industrial relations reform uh, is uh, yeah, it's it's sort of become a way to prove you're serious in Australian politics. Now, um, you know the fact is our, our labour market's changed radically in the last fifty years. Um, culturally we've changed, technology's changed, the international environment's changed. Um, industrial relations laws need to change over time to keep pace with that. There's no doubt about that. Um, but in Australia, we have a very, very strong coalition in the business community on the conservative side of politics that's determined to own the word reform. Now, we have to be really clear, reform isn't good or bad. Um, uh, reform, well, reform means change for the better. Um, and in Australia, you know, the conservative side of politics has got very good at sort of defining ownership of this good-sounding word, reform. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that employer groups want to change industrial relations laws in ways that suit them. And we shouldn't be surprised that unions want to change industrial relations laws in ways that suit them. But in Australia, we're kind of forced into this rhetorical trap. Do you support reforming the industrial relations system in the way proposed by the business community? Or do you think we should stay stuck in the past and leave everything the way it is? Well, you know that's that's a powerful rhetorical framing, but it's it, it's it's not logical. Um, should we change our industrial relations system for the better? Well, of course we should. I think everyone would agree with that general proposition. Can we get something like consensus about what a change in our industrial relations system that would be better is? Uh, I don't know. I think it's a long time since anyone tried to do that. So Scott Morrison says that's what he wants to try and do. But interestingly, you know, unlike Bob Hawke, uh, Scott Morrison isn't saying, I'm going to sit at the table. I'm going to sit at the table with employer groups, with union groups and see what we can nut out. Um, Scott Morrison seems to be suggesting that the union's employers should go and lock themselves in a room and, and come back to him when they've solved the problem. Now, maybe they can do that. You know, I hope they can find changes that they both agree are better. Uh, but, yeah, I'm, I'm probably a bit cynical here. I think the Prime Minister is... Uh, he knew he couldn't get his his so-called union-busting laws through the Parliament, so rather than sort of admit failure, he's, um, he said, no, no, we, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask the unions and employers to cook up a new plan for me. 
um, time will tell how that goes, but uh, uh, history suggests it probably won't get too far. And you, you highlight that you highlight a circumstance where um, the prime minister may also not be in a position where he has to take ownership of the outcome. Because you cite Bob Hawke, and Bob Hawke inserted himself into the discussion um, and then took ownership of the outcome. Um, yeah, and that's you know it's quite a different approach. Um, you know, there's there's no doubt that when when Bob Hawke said, "I'm gonna." sort of knock this accord together, we, we called it a tripartite agreement. And it was quite explicit. It was the business community, uh, the union movement and the government. And not only did that, uh, did that tripartite arrangement perhaps make it easier for employers and employees to work together, um, the, and it's been widely remarked, the, you know, the, the Hawke government put a lot of money on the table and said, look, if you guys can sort out some of this stuff, maybe we can sort of sweeten the deal. And, and, and you know, the, the, the Hawke-Keating government spent a fortune on what's now called the social wage, which basically was part of that tripartite consensus. If people would expect lower wage, accept lower wage growth in that era, the government would spend more on public health, more on public education, more on a range of services, and basically saying, well, the, the public can boost the, the social wage in such a way that even if your private wage wasn't growing, um, your, your, uh, your quality of life could grow because there was better public health and better public education. So having not just three people at the table, but three people contributing or three sectors contributing uh, made it easier to break that impasse. Scott Morrison hasn't said, well, I'm willing to put $100 billion uh, on the table to help sort of figure out a way for the unions and employers to, 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 to break their impasse. He's He's just said, hey, why don't you guys go and see if you can solve this problem? Now, again, let's hope they do, but uh, I'm, I'm probably not as optimistic as the Prime Minister sounded at the press club last week. Well, the, the last area, final area I want to touch uh, touch on with you is probably one that I've got a greater deal of affinity, given that I've hung around with accountants for more than two decades, is tax reform. Given what you said, <laughs> given what you said, not on, warm. yeah, good. <laughs> um, I, I remind me never to use that word in your presence, but <laughs> but um, it changes to the tax mix, changes to the way in which we uh, get revenue into the government coffers are difficult to achieve in Australia. Are there any areas you think we ought to be playing with, at least even tentatively, uh, in the short to medium term, uh, to to try and get change happening? Uh, well, if you're asking me as an economist, it's it's really easy. I mean, there's not an economics textbook in the world that disagrees with the proposition that if we collected uh, more tax on pollutants like carbon dioxide. Uh, we would increase the efficiency of our economy and boost our revenues in ways that would either facilitate greater public spending on services people want or lower taxes somewhere else. Like there's literally not an economics textbook in the world 
that says introducing a carbon tax would be inefficient for the economy. But Australia being what it is, uh, we've convinced ourselves the most harmful thing you could do to the economy would be to introduce a carbon tax. Um, the same is, of course, true with the mining super profits tax. So-called resource rents tax or super profits taxes uh, are always loved by economists because the only thing economists don't like about taxes is that taxes can distort people's behaviour in ways that might not be efficient or desirable. So uh, if, if we put enormous taxes, for example, uh, on the buying and selling of homes, people might end up living in homes that don't suit them purely because the, the taxes on selling one home and buying a new one uh, make swapping to a more suitable home uh, seem like a dumb idea. So that's why economists don't like stamp duty on, on houses because we think the tax gets in the way of people moving out of houses that don't suit them anymore. Um, but economists love taxes on tobacco because uh, if we change people's behaviour, <laughs> that's a success, that's a win. Uh, so, so economists like taxes on things that we're trying to discourage and we also like taxes on things where you can't really change people's behaviour. So taxing land um, is, is a good one because you can't reduce the supply of land uh, and similarly taxing super profits is a good one. And, of course, it was the coalition that introduced uh, effectively a super, a super tax profit on the big banks a couple of years ago. So even the coalition accept that premise. So the problem in Australia is, is that some groups in Australia are so politically powerful that they just simply have a veto over what are economically good ideas and democratically popular ideas. Uh, so, so when people say, should we have tax reform? Well, let's decode that. Should we have change for the better? Of course. Can we agree on what kind of changes to the tax system would be better? Uh, well, again, virtually every economist in the world would agree uh, that a carbon tax is an efficient way to collect revenue and an effective way to change behaviour. Uh, virtually every economist in the world would agree that taxing super profits is a good idea because it collects revenue without changing, uh, without changing behaviour because no monopolist wants to get out of an industry just because you put a tax on them. Um, but in Australia, are we likely to do that? No. In Australia, we just use the term tax reform as some form of econobabble as a code word for cutting the company tax rate. Now, if we want to cut the company tax rate, we can do that. But of course, anyone that un understands dividend imputation means that it has absolutely no impact, absolutely no impact uh, on, uh, on, on the after-tax returns of Australian investment and the only beneficiaries, the only beneficiaries of cutting the company tax rate in Australia uh, are foreign-owned companies and, of course, foreign treasuries because when Australia has bilateral tax treaties with countries, uh, the tax people paying, companies pay in Australia is credited against the tax they're due at home. So when we cut the company tax rate in Australia on foreign companies, it means they pay a bit less tax here and they likely pay a bit more tax in their home country. Now, what a strange priority for, for the Business Council of Australia to have, uh, but let's not pretend the fact that it's important to them makes it change for the better. 
I, I just don't accept it's reform. It, it's just change and it's expensive change, but I don't even think it's significant or important change, let alone change for the better. And that, that we've covered a fair bit over the past half an hour, Richard. It's probably a good time to uh, let you get back, let you get back to enjoying your Sunday afternoon. Thank you so much for joining me for this today. Thank you, and uh, sorry about the dogs barking in the background. <laughs> oh, that's all right. Where do people find your books? You've written a lot of material. Where's the best way? What's the best way for people to look your your books like Econobabble up? Oh, look, the, the, the best way is also the safest way these days in these uh, socially distanced times. Um, yeah, look, Econobabble and Dead Right and Curing Affluenza uh, are all published by Black Ink. Um, and, uh, yeah, if, if people Google myself, I'm sure they'll be able to find them and you can buy them all online, either get them delivered or, you know, they're, they're cheaper and quicker to buy as e-books. Richard, thank you so much for, for letting us know that and also thank you for, for your time today. Thank you.